Research Bites. I'm Felix Cohen, and with me as always is Lachlan Gray. Um, unfortunately, Intiaz cannot make it today. Uh, he'll be back with us next week. Um, and today we're talking to Shell Roberts. Um, Shell's a PhD student from the School of Psychology, and her research is looking at the restorative be benefits of natural scene statistics. Bit of a mouthful. It is a mouthful, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How are you going? Good, good. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. Um, I, I'm, for one, is, I'm a super big fan of your research, and I'm really uh, keen to get into it. Um, but first, I think let's take it a little bit back to your own research journey, maybe um, in the past. How did you get to where you're at now? Yeah, it's a bit of a funny story, actually, because um, by happy accident, I finished school and I actually worked as a wilderness educator for seven or eight years full time. So I was out in nature, hiking and abseiling and caving and working in nature as a natural environment. And then as part of that role, I ended up working with Westmead Children's Hospital um, for the kids in their brain trauma unit. They wanted to run an outdoor program for kids that had quite restricted um, a range of abilities based on their injuries. And we ran that program for three years and working with that clinical team, uh, which was headed up by a series of clinical neuropsychologists, I just was fascinated with the brain and what they do. And the lady running the program said to me, um, she's the head clinical neuropsychologist at the time at Western Children's, and she was like, if you want to work with kids in this area, it's a Bachelor of Psychology, and then you specialise in neuropsychology, and then you go from there. So I obviously didn't do the whole pathway, mm -hmm. but I ended up, yeah, wrapping up my work, and I was lucky enough to be accepted into a Bachelor of Psychology with honours as the four-year program down at UOW at Wollongong Uni, um, and got into that, did a five-year, did it in five years, did my honours over, over two years, um, and my honours topic I was randomly allocated to <laughs> studying the um, the tuning of the human visual system to the properties that are in nature. And I was like, okay, cool. Fractals, all wow, right. What? <laughs> yeah. how, do, how do they... This seems like a very serendipitous uh, yeah, turn of events. It's weird, it's like isn't a, it? At University of Wollongong, they just spin a wheel and they give you whatever. <laughs> you don't get to choose? It's, it's actually a, a, a very sophisticated gladiatorial fight. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it's... There's, I would imagine, about 60, 60 students who are accepted into the honours cohort. They list the supervisors and their topics, and you indicate your preferences. Okay. And hopefully, you're allocated your top one of your top three preferences. So I did list mm -hmm. that as one of my top three, and and I was lucky enough to be allocated to it. Wow, how interesting! Was how was that process of had you encountered this area in your undergrad at all? Never. Was was is is this at the time? Is was it like an established field, or was it like? I guess, yeah, like um, when, when you started that, what was your fundamental question, I guess? Yeah, so completely new area to me, uh, but it's like a well-established decades-long area okay, of research. Sure. It re really took off in the 80s with some sort of computational work that was done that was able to sort of be mapped onto how the brain works, and people were like, oh, there's something going on here with human visual systems and the shape and structure of nature, so it generated interest, and it's been decades of research since. But it was new to me, and I was just excited to learn about all these new... Um, I suppose the, the language when we talk about natural scene statistics, it's just a bit of a mouthful for the fact that natural scenes 
and I'm talking about like when you look at a mountain environment, when you're up in the Blue Mountains and you look out over the National Park, when you're driving and you look out the window at whatever you're driving past, if it's mostly green, the way that nature is arranged in terms of its shapes and structure, its complexity, none of that is random, none of that is chaotic. It's actually systematically regulated and scene to scene, one of the fascinating things that has been identified is when you look at a desert image and a rainforest image, the statistics map almost perfectly one-to-one. -one. Even though at the superficial level, you go, wow, these scenes couldn't be more different. The behavior of some properties like edges and luminance variations, so how light and dark part of the scene is, mm -hmm. they're actually highly consistent all around the world. Uh, even though a rainforest looks very different to an alpine scene covered in snow. That is kind <laughs> of, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of how that's even possible. Wow. Yeah, it, it, is, it almost seems counterintuitive, but yeah. I guess part of it almost speaks back to how biological systems all grow in pretty similar ways. Mm. Like when you look at neurons or vessels or capillaries in a dish, and then mm. you look at the branches of a tree, okay. we see these similar shapes pretty much everywhere in nature. But it's not even just structure, it's even just when you have any ordered shape, when you've got variations between light and dark, um, they're, they're just surprisingly quite consistent from scene to scene. And our, I guess one of the major parts of this research project and part of what I study is how our, our visual system as, as mammals, as human beings, has developed in the biological environment, has been exposed to those shapes and patterns for I mean, is it millennia? Yeah, it's yeah. definitely hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years. And we are what's called tuned to those properties. We're very sensitive to them. We're very fluent is actually the best word. We're fluent in those kinds of shapes. We're very good at discerning differences. We're very good at responding to those shapes. And a lot of my research is about how we actually find those shapes calming and restorative to be exposed to. I have a... So many questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a lot. It's a there lot. Is, uh, that, this is just so fascinating. But I think maybe let's try to visualize some of these patterns in nature. What actually is an example of some of the patterns that we see? Because I, I know that mm -hmm. they sort of traverse very large length scales. Like yeah. they're seen very large in, in areas in nature, but also very small. Absolutely. So what are these patterns? Yeah, the best way to describe it is probably that we there are a variety of properties that we're interested in and they're all different. So there's, for example, just hue, like the colour in a scene. I'm not a colour researcher, but that's a huge property of natural scenes. Um, one property that comes up a lot is fractal structure, which might ring a bell. So fract a fractal is any self-repeating shape and um, kind of like what you were saying, Felix, about these different scales. Um, uh, Fractal structure is where you get a consistent relationship when you zoom in and you have the fine details. So you're in your backyard and you pick up a leaf and you look at the branching patterns in the leaf and all those little cells, those kinds of shapes. And then from there you can zoom out a bit better. Maybe there's a stick that's on the ground and you pick up the stick and it will have those same relationships of branching patterns. Mm -hmm. And then from there, again, at a larger spatial scale, spatial meaning in, in space, what we're seeing in the world, um, you've got like the boughs and branches of the tree. Um, but the relationship and, and the direction and orientation of that branching, there's some sort of irregularity in it, but it's remarkably consistent across all of those different scales. 
Um, I think I think branching is an easy one for people mm. to kind of picture in their mind's eye. Or like broccoli, right? Is often used yeah. as one of them. Yeah, and you'll see, like, again, you'll see the sort of patterns and shapes in broccoli, and then you'll see, looking down on a forest from above, you see these same shapes, and, mm. yeah. Right. And so, one question I have is, we want to understand or analyse these scenes. Is it, it's only become a thing now because we're applying mathematics to it, and it does itself require, like, a photograph of the scene, for then someone to analyze it, like, yeah, and all of these concepts are relatively new, I guess, in terms of history, like yeah. thinking about geometry of space and stuff. Yeah, so this is probably why it really took off in the eighties, uh, and some of the research that really kicked off was photography of natural scenes, and there was a re- there were a couple of researchers actually who identified that. So they took like literal images of a variety of different scenes of a park of trees of a mountain all in nature and then that black and white image they sort of digitally scanned and had mm. a computer and were able to perform a series of computational analyses and so um, we employ something very similar so to measure fractal structure it's sort of we've got a computational program that does a sophisticated form of box counting which is where you're at these different scales you're measuring how much space is filled and then you sort of zoom out and see how much space is filled, zoom out and see how much space is filled and that relationship between scales. Um, it's always a strange thing to describe, but um, pretty much the fractal values in this domain range between one and two and the closer to one they are, the more simple and less, less repetition of complexity and the higher that number gets, the more complexity um, the busier the scene is, but it's sort of consistently busy across these multiple scales. Um, and another really common one though, and this was the work that was done in the 80s, this is a bit of a mouthful, is a statistical property that we look at called amplitude spectra. So we you take this image and you apply a fast Fourier transform, which is uh, yeah, maybe uh, ringing a bell. Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we, we run this, um, essentially you're, you're breaking Oh, okay, language. You're breaking down the scene into its relative sine and cosine components. Mm-hmm. So the, the simplest way of probably explaining it is there are changes between light and dark in an image. So you take this photo of um, the trees in the park and at um, a broad scale, you analyze the variations between light and, blah, uh, light and dark, kind of at a global level. Um, then you can zoom in and at sort of a middle scale level, analyze the variations between light and dark and again you can uh, analyze this relationship between oscillations between light and dark um, across multiple what are called spatial frequencies and all natural scenes when you decompose them in this manner have um, sort of a a consistent power law relationship that comes up Mm -hmm. Um, and again I know I know that's a bit of a mouthful but you can take these two completely different scenes you apply this transform and you plot this relationship of luminance over spatial frequency or temporal frequency, and you'll get this consistent relationship. It's the same statistical property again and again and again. And this is similar across like what we would perceive as vastly different environments. Yeah. The same. Yep. So you're, you're essentially turning an, an image into a set of numbers and yep. then comparing those numbers in yep. a way. Yeah. And this this power law we see just keeps emerging with a very consistent slope of line again and again and again. Yeah. 
And then, then further to that, <laughs> what you're saying is that our brains are very in tune to yep. to to this. Yeah, yeah. So this is sort of uh, this was what I did in my honours, which I was um, really really happy to have published last year. Um, so what we do in our lab is because there's sort of a computational component to this, we can synthetically generate a stimulus using our computer that's all these different luminance intensities and we can manipulate them so that they will display the same behaviour as a natural scene. Mm. Uh, and this is why I brought, I do have a picture, I'm sorry for everyone at home, but um, I'll find a way to describe it, maybe you guys can describe what you see. Um, but I've got an example here of stimuli that we use, um, the central stimulus having a relationship between light and dark across spatial frequencies that has the same statistics as what we would see in a natural scene. What we do is when we generate a, a stimulus like this, we can then manipulate that relationship between properties so we can flatten it right out uh, across the um, spectrum and we get a stimulus that looks almost like white noise. And so you wouldn't really see this anywhere in nature. Mm. We, we've changed the relationship here. Um, the other thing we can do is we can really steepen the slope of this power law uh, to make it something that you wouldn't see in nature. And that introduces a much more blurry and broad kind of looking image um, that again is what we, what we would say is outside of the natural range. Mm. So for my honours work, I generated a bunch of manipulations like this and I was also interested in, to not add, to not make it a whole extra other level, this domain also exists in time, so there's motion that corresponds to this. There's a natural form of motion that has the same power law, and we can flatten it, and things get rapid and chaotic fast. You wouldn't see that in nature. And we can also steepen it, and things get really slow, like the stimulus, the light and dark oscillations are really, really slow. And again, that's not natural motion. So we had all these manipulations, and I got people to uh, sit and do a discrimination task, just sit and pick the odd one out, essentially. It's a really common perceptual uh, psychophysics task. And what we found was that when a stimulus had the same properties as we see in nature, um, the participants were like razor-sharp good at being able to tell two things apart. There could be a really subtle difference, but as long as it was kind of around this middle range, pe people were very good at discriminating a difference. Once we move away from that natural range and you've got kind of a white noisy stimulus or, or a, a, a blurred stimulus, they can be quite different and, and people, they kind of all just look the same. They, they can't really, we're just not sensitive to it. We're not good at picking up differences. Um, same with slight variations in white noise. We don't have the capacity to pick up those discriminations. Uh, we're very good at it though. We're, we're highly sensitive when it's, uh, a stimulus that resembles nature. So, to kind of, I guess, try to keep on track, we this sort of field of research is looking at how natural and non-natural visual stimuli affect our brains differently. Yeah, yeah. The sort of this body of research was specifically about um, empirically measuring our sensitivity to these mm. properties, our visual systems tuning to them. And we've demonstrated that in space. We've demonstrated that in time. Yeah. Uh, and then my PhD, um, I was really happy to be able to keep studying this area and extend it. Um, Professor Brunkus Behar here at UNSW is like a leading figure in this field in natural scene statistics. And my PhD has shifted into still studying these properties, but studying the benefits that we get from 
visual exposure to mm. them. So how does looking at this affect your body? How does it make you feel? Um, can it improve? Can looking at this stuff improve your attention, your memory? What are the benefits we can get from exposure to these statistics? I guess it's like kind of a, a hypothesis of something that's been around for a while that like nature makes us feel better. But yes. I think in one of the papers yeah. you sent, it, it mentioned that until, you know, this sort of field has emerged, there wasn't, I guess, a way of proving that or in, in quantitatively showing mm. that looking at natural scenes versus, say, like just built environment scenes, yeah. maybe uh, making us depressed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The other way. yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's something that a lot of people feel is anecdotally true. Mm. And looking back through history, it's anecdotally true. Access to gardens and green spaces there's something about it that just we feel like it's good for us and sometimes when you seek it out even if you're not an outdoorsy person if you've just been able to sit and look at the beach or i don't know just stand outside for a while after you've been in an office all day mm. it, it, it feels good um, it's calming it's restorative um, there are labs all around the world that are examining different parts of this question some labs are looking at is it the colors in these scenes is it the wavelength of green light is it the presence of water like, what is it that has this effect on us? And my lab are actually looking at, yeah, like we've talked about, what are the image features that because our brain is tuned to them, we process it, we process them effortlessly. We don't have to work hard to process them. It's the native language of our brain. We're fluent in it. Uh, as opposed to when you walk through the city, you've got all these right angles, you've got all these shapes that... Um, you might not even realise are, are kind of foreign to your brain mm -hmm. and outside of this range that we're fluent and it's it's harder work. Yeah. yeah that's a really interesting idea because, um, of, of course, a lot of people, they see they see natural landscapes and they go for a hike or whatever and they, they feel, I guess, that, that connection to, to nature and that sort of wonderful feeling that you get. But then there's also, alternatively, I, and a lot of people love looking at cities at night or something like that. So do you, do you have like ideas why that might be the case? Like, yeah, it's been part of, um, part of a study that I've done has actually, you know, so there's a lot of research where people are sort of saying, look, exposure to nature scenes is better for you than exposure to urban scenes. Not a lot of labs have this natural scene statistics perspective. Um, most of the research in this area is comparing actual images of nature with actual urban images. Um, but there's some emerging research that, that seems to show that there are benefits from viewing any stimulus that we find pleasing. So if you prefer it, it's pleasant for you. It's got like a downstream effect that's beneficial. And so there's quite beautiful features in the city lights at night, um, or even if it's what you're familiar with more so than some rural scene that you didn't grow up in and you don't know about, if you look at it and you find it pleasing, then that can be beneficial in a different way as well. So, yeah, one of the studies that I've conducted, we, uh, we were particularly interested in um, trying to quantify cognitive benefits of exposure to nature. We used actual natural and urban scenes. Uh, but what we did was we were interested in this role of preference. We're like, are people being restored mm -hmm. by nature or is it that exposure to a preferred stimulus mm -hmm. is giving us these benefits? So um, there was a study the year before um, that was in our lab where participants had a, a database of uh, about 150 natural images and about 200 urban scenes, and people just rated them on how much you like it, 
how calming you find it, um, do you find it stressful to look at, um, kind of a, a few sort of subjective variables. Um, and it was 990 people in the end that viewed and rated all these stimuli and there were remarkable correlations between these images. So we were able to basically take these images and break them in, rank them into thirds. So the top third of the most liked stimuli, then we had like an intermediate group who were kind of moderately liked. And then we definitely had sort of a bottom <laughs> third of images that people were like, what were they? I don't like it. Well, it's interesting because we did it for both the natural scenes and the urban mm -hmm. scenes. Um, the purpose of us doing this was we wanted to show people in our research, we, so we get them to do a series of cognitive tests, and then we have one group that goes and looks at the most liked urban scenes and views those in kind of a restoration window. They do some ratings so we can do a manipulation check to see if the ratings of these groups agrees with the ratings of this other sample. So we get people to have 10 minutes of just viewing and rating these lovely urban images, mm -hmm. and then they re-perform the cognitive tests and we're looking for a benefit um, so we had we had six groups we had people doing that for each of the three ranked urban groups and each of the three ranked nature groups um, I feel like you asked a question before oh what was it that makes oh it's interesting when you, I guess when you look at the low uh, like we were controlling for image properties like average luminance and hue and saturation but when, when you look at the least preferred and liked natural scenes a lot of them are, um, like, I guess, look look maybe messy or vine-covered or mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to describe. Maybe they just look a bit boring, like a bucolic kind of like a flat landscape with a fence in it. Like a, <laughs> It's just I don't, compared to if you've just seen this beautiful yeah. Vietnamese rainforest that you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, yeah. So maybe there's an elephant, uh, an element of how interesting the stimulus yeah. is. And I guess it's, it's yeah. almost like how do you find like a nature because there'll be people yep. that will be like oh you your standard bushwalk mm. is that really nature i've got to be in like the middle of nowhere exactly. to really, untouched, yeah, pristine, yeah exactly. remote regions hacking through with a machete helicopter me out. <laughs> yeah yeah and so uh, that's also a whole other area of defining okay the images that are used in this area and people have gone to great lengths to describe what the park is natural i had another thought um and this is probably an obvious question but what about so so uh, you're talking about you know, natural um, surroundings and then you found that also urban areas in certain contexts are also having this pleasing effect. What about art galleries? Like, because art galleries, the buildings themselves are very angular, sort of, I, I read in one of the papers you sent, very like Euclidean sort Euclidean. of structures, right? Yep. And then, but when you're, when you're looking at an artwork, I'm just thinking in my head that classic Ferris Bueller uh, uh, moment yeah, where, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. So we actually, as a sidebar, is we've run, you know, our, our lab as a vision and perception lab here at UNSW. We just recently ran a whole analysis on the Archibald Prize because oh, it's cool. been 100 years of the Archie. So we've had sort of, um, act like, on the website, digital access to all, uh, to, like, nearly 2,000 portraits that have been entered over the last 101 years. Uh, and we broke them down and analysed them by their statistical properties. And many of these portraits are, are abstract or, you know, um, surre not surrealist. Oh, some of them were surrealist. Uh, impressionist, mm -hmm. you know. Um, some of them are hyper-realistic, almost like look like photographs. Um, and we, we analysed um, the fractal structure um, from year to year. We analysed the amplitude spectra from year to year. And we wanted to see if there are differences in the portraits that are awarded the Archibald 
versus the portraits that win the people's choice and the portraits that win the packing room prize. Wow, that's a really mm. interesting study. Cool. Yeah, and we, we did find differences, which is interesting. So we, we found that this would have been something great for me to read up on, hey, before we talked <laughs> about it. But we did find that uh, in fractal structure, um, there's no difference in, so this is like, this would be out of a thousand, out of 1800 portraits, there are three prizes. For the last 30 years, three prizes have been given. We uh, compared People's Choice and Packing Room Prize and their fractal structure was pretty much similar, statistically equal, no major differences. The portraits that won the, the Archibald Prize were significantly higher in their fractal structure, so it had more complexity in them. Mm -hmm. And that's odd because when you look at these, you know, I was sitting and looking at these portraits, they don't necessarily, they don't look busier, they don't look more complex. This is quite a subtle measurement in some ways. It's sort of areas of canvas that might have more information in them. It's sort of a, an overall measure. But either way, we did observe this, this difference. And so we're wondering next about maybe there's something about um, expert observers that, mm. that have a different um, sort of aesthetic standard than um, the everyday public. The fractals in art is another really interesting, like, yeah. sort of topic. I'd, I read in, in one of those papers about how it was discovered that Jackson Pollock's work mm. is, yeah. is very, yeah. Uh, like, yeah, that was cool. high or uh, it's very specific of these structures and they're actually using that to, like, delineate fakes or something. Yeah, and so this is Richard Taylor's work, who's sort of a, a not a sister lab, but a lab in Oregon over in the States mm. that we work with. Um, and so... Um, yeah, we've done some really cool research with them where we've uh, laid out um, fractal patterns on carpets in a few businesses in the States, and they measured them to see sort of how it affected the performance of office staff mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, and Richard Taylor was um, one of the key people um, who was behind the development of the images of the chapel that I sent you guys. Yeah, um, you should talk, talk further on that because that was really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's really beautiful. So, uh, so a lot of Richard Taylor's research... Um, I'm pretty sure that he was a professor of physics, he was a physicist, and then he just became, he's an artist, he's so fascinated by art that he began studying Pollock's fractals and he's now a professor of psychology. Mm. Uh, and so he was the first to, I believe, empirically, empirically show that um, Pollock's fractals aren't chaotic and random. There is um, a consistent fractal structure to them that does resemble patterns in nature. Um, that's quite different to a lot of other sort of splash dab mm. uh, art that you might see. Um, and so Pollock has some really interesting painting techniques um, that, that might be part of, of why that is. Um, it's really, really yeah. interesting just on that point because when Pollock was working, like fractals weren't a thing, right? He was before the... There's a famous mathematician, right, that sort of... Defined. Yeah, um, uh, Benoit Mandel, Mandelbrot. But yeah. uh, this is sort of from the 70s that mm. um, Mandelbrot was sort of is the father of fractals um, as a sort of area of geometry. Uh, so I, that that might have been earlier. I mean, when when was Pollock really? The 50s or something, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean, one of Completely the things separate parts of the world. I read is that um, everyone says that you know the mathematician was the one who discovered fractals but it's evident that they're in you know his Pollock's work from 20 years before and then 
even in evolution in and in nature. Right? Oh, yeah. everywhere in nature, yeah. 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 Uh, but the, the the statistical quantification of mm. the um, uh, Mandelbrot was the one that got it down on paper. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, uh, Richard um, was involved in a lot of that research and then um, some of his research on looking at these manipulations of natural scene shapes and patterns um, he worked with this team in, um, is it Gra- Graz over in Austria, mm. that they were able to embed some of these principles into their design. And so uh, I believe it's a hospital, there's a, a chapel, um, like a reflection space inside this hospital um, that's been designed so that shapes have been cut out of um, the wall that allow light to pass through uh, and those shapes have been cut out in, in patterns and form that resemble natural scene shapes. And so as the light shines through, you get this mottled effect on the ground that looks a lot like our stimuli. Mm-hmm. And it, as it moves throughout the day, it can kind of sort of broaden or it can sharpen. And so it's like it's being a, in a forest. It's a dynamic process as it well. It is, yeah. And it is. So, so the light's moving through the, the walls in a way that, like, it would be moving through tree leaves or something. Is that yeah, the idea? Yeah, it looks like wow, the yeah. mottled, yeah, the mottled sort of canopy, like the floor of the forest. Sure, yeah. yeah, it's it quite beautiful. beautiful yeah. Have yeah. you been... No, I'd love to. Mm. I'd love to go over and see it. But it's always fascinating. Like a lot of my research, I get to nudge at these areas where people, not so much the natural scene statistics side of thing, but just the benefits of natural shapes and patterns, Mm. like murals being painted in inpatient psychiatric facilities or in prisons and studies have been conducted and you just see in general aggression go down in the population. Mm. You see the need for sort of sedation and... Um, sort of inpatient or in prisoner mm-hmm. uh, fights and issues, it just goes down. Um, people seem to respond when their environment uh, has has something in it that resembles nature. Um, it's a good question there to go. Well, I mean, was were their walls blank before then? Mm-hmm. You know, is it just any stimulus? So a lot of these studies will deliberately have like beautiful urban scenes or inspirational quotes and compare them to nature scenes. Uh, and in, in general, there are benefits to all compared to nothing, but there does seem to be something interesting and beneficial about a nature scene. How was it um, sort of working on that very multidisciplinary project? And does your lab intend on doing sort of more nature design um, in the future? Yeah, I think it's, it's always just fascinating whenever it comes up. And mm-hmm. my supervisor is wonderful and incredibly creative and artistic as well. Um, and so she's more than happy to lean into these opportunities. Mm-hmm. When the Archibald Prize was having its 100th year, our lab was like, let's do an image analysis. Like It's just a, a fun and interesting thing to do. Um, we have a, a method of analysing scenes that is computational. It's parametric. And so we can analyze anything really so the archibald was a great opportunity and um anything else that comes up i'm sure we'd be excited to lean into as well so um uh, maybe you've you've got this question loaded <laughs> felix but <clears throat> on, on that idea of of analyzing <clears throat> sorry my throat's just gone on could you or is this being used in um uh, what are the what's the AI um, stable diffusion like and those like, oh, like image the, generation AI, like um, deep learning uh, what's, what's it called uh, well, uh, yeah Dali yeah, yeah. yeah these sort of things is oh, that I love it so much because <laughs> I play with it all the time is there like a I've heard of this idea of the uncanny valley right yeah. so you can see something and you and it's so perfectly real that it looks fake yeah there's something mm-hmm. off about it is is are there images that these algorithms can make that are maybe inadvertently filling out these fractal patterns because they look so real like they yeah you know what i mean 
it's interesting. It's it's outside of my area, so I'm not sure. But I find it very interesting, and I'm not sure about the uncanny valley effect. We have a sort of a comparison in in psych, which is called the frozen face effect. That's when you take a photo and you feel like that's not what I look like. Like mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever felt that, but you're like I don't look like it's flipped. <laughs> yeah, or it's just like we we're used to the dynamic, and we're not used to frozen face and. It's similar but different to Uncanny Valley where you just go, something's off. That doesn't look quite right. It's invasion of the body snatches. Like mm. some, something, mm. some, what is it? I can't put my finger on it. Something's off. I, I don't know how natural scene statistics could inform that. An area that I do think it would be interesting to train AI art on would be, if you, if you, have you ever used these yeah. interfaces where you'll be like, don't ask me why I was doing this recently, Pavarotti holding a bowl of curry up and singing, <laughs> Ness and Dorma, let's not go there. Um, but you get these like splicing. It's a classic mm, yeah. feature of AI art. And um, this is because the the network's trained on all these images and it mm. mashes them together. If you could uh, perhaps have like a, a check or an algorithm that was also trained on the eventual image that gets spat out should conform to these properties, mm. you wouldn't be able to get those bizarre splicings because it's very unusual in nature to get harsh changes between shape and form like that right. and colour. So that I would find that interesting if the if the network could be could be trained in uh, yeah, if it behaved like that out of a natural variation, it would smooth that over or get rid of it. Wow. Or or even on the flip side, in in the era of like deep faking and that sort of stuff, that could be used as like a test. Yeah. To be like this is a fake image because mm. No real image would ever con- have Natural these patterns. things. Exactly, I yeah, wonder. it can't exist in nature. Probably once they get so good, they'll be able to actually pick up on those natural patterns. Like, Oh, yeah, I mean, the future's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we look well, forward to your eventual... Well, that's, that's a good segue yeah, yeah, yeah. for the future. Uh, <laughs> no, so <laughs> you're at the end of your, your PhD, yeah. um, and you, you mentioned earlier that you're in the sort of writing stage. Do you have any advice for yourself when you started your PhD? Um, and any if you, any listeners who yeah. are embarking on a, I it's it's interesting because I, I started my PhD in in, in February twenty twenty and COVID hit in in March, uh, so I, I feel like it's a bit of an unusual experience. Um, but I would have told myself earlier, and I think that this holds for anyone, is to get out and do anything physical with your body. Uh, and I know that sounds strange because we always talk about, you know, self-care or professional boundaries or work-life balance, and those are all good things. But during the Delta lockdowns, me and my best mate in Wollongong got into ocean swimming and it was freezing cold and we would go no matter what the weather was doing um, and we would go and throw ourselves in the ocean and we started swimming 100 metres and now we swim, you know, two kilometres. We do our swim. Nice. And, and I had, had never really done anything that that was that when you throw yourself into cold water it just there's a shock to it it gets you out of your head you can't do anything but try and get warm or cope or get out or just whatever (laughs) there's no room for thinking and a phd is it's just a constant intellectual drain it's fatiguing (laughs) and then you know when you stop thinking about it and you start thinking about other things you're like i should probably be thinking about Mm. the main thing i'm meant to think about um, and I would have days where I was like, I'm too busy to go for an ocean swim, or I'm, t- I'm too busy. And shout out to my, my best mate, who's a legend. She'd be like, Shell, it's 20 minutes. Come on. So I'd go and I'd, 
like throw myself in the water and just this this shock it's like washing your brain you you can't you can't think your brain gets a rest like it's just uh for me it was swimming in the ocean it, it might be like I don't know, I was never a gym person. I think there's something about getting into your body and doing something physical mm, when you use yeah. your brain all the time for essentially a full-time a full-time job. Mm. Yeah. And getting out and looking at nature. Looking yeah, at... it doesn't hurt as well. <laughs> looking at those fractals <laughs> in the rain, yeah. in the waves. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just sit and take some time out and look at those waves roll in. There is, there is something pretty lovely about it. Yeah. Mm. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for um, having me. You can catch up on Shell's research if you want to follow her on her Twitter. Yes, on my terrible Twitter handle. <laughs> yes, so it's at Shell Roberts with two underscores. Shell's C-H-E-L-L-E underscore underscore R-O-B-E-R-T-S. I don't know what I was thinking. You can't tell it's two. But, yep, that's me on Twitter. And, um, yeah, I post a lot of my research there. Yeah. Cool. Well, we, uh, yeah, look forward to seeing how it goes. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great fun. Thank you. Uh, See you later. Bye.